Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP, which this week examines the collapse of Afghanistan's government. The sacrifice in Afghanistan is seared into our national consciousness. There's been a major miscalculation of the resilience of the Afghan forces and staggering complacency from our government about the Taliban threat. Really tragic, surprising, shocking. We've been, dare I say it, undermined by the American decision. We are totally heartbroken. Whatever we achieved, it washed away. I have friends who are living in terror, who have visas and passports, who can't get to the airport. This is a shameful episode. Everything we've done for the last 20 years is gone. So everything that everybody sacrificed is for nothing. This doesn't need to be defeat. But at the moment, damn well feels like it. It's almost 20 years since international forces invaded Afghanistan and overthrew the Taliban. The group's return to power in the country took less than 20 days. We are trapped. We, we cannot do anything. Kabul is captured. Every, everywhere Taliban are seen. Will I be alive tomorrow? We cannot guarantee that. Kabul fell without a fight. Afghanistan's president fleeing the country as the Taliban approached. A point not lost on President Biden, facing international criticism over the consequences of his unilateral withdrawal. Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed, sometime without trying to fight. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. A decision accepted by other NATO member states, according to Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. The choice was to choose between two very difficult alternatives with the risks and downsides uh, connected to both of them. Either the risk of uh, Taliban returning uh, or the risk of more decades, many more years, in Afghanistan. But Chief of the Defence Staff General Sinek Carter rejects the argument put by Joe Biden that Afghan forces are to blame. Thousands of the Afghan security forces died fighting for their country. So I think one has to be careful about saying that they just simply didn't fight. I think the bottom line was is that the, the way in which um, the army was created depended a huge amount on international contributions, not least air power. So now the Taliban occupy the presidential palace in Kabul and spokesman Zabihullah Mujahid faces the press to insist the organisation has changed. I reassure all internationals, the UN, all embassies, to all our neighbours that we will not be allowing the soil of Afghanistan to be used against anybody. We assure them, we keep our promises and we keep the Islamic Emirates' promises. But they'll also insist on respect for Sharia law and Taliban promises to respect women's rights aren't reassuring for people like Ranjina Hamidi, who was education minister in Afghanistan's now deposed government. I haven't done anything bad and hopefully I won't have to pay the price for joining a government position. I might face consequences that I never even dreamed of. Uh, and I guess that's the price that we pay for trying to make this world a little better uh, than when we came to it. 
Meanwhile, at Kabul's airport, chaos as people try to flee, even clinging to the underside of a US Air Force plane as it takes off. I can't believe the world abandoned Afghanistan. <laughs> Our friends are going to get killed. They're going to kill us. Our women are not going to have any more rights. The sounds of a chaotic week in Kabul. The nations who last month pulled their forces out of Afghanistan have this week had to return in a desperate effort to evacuate people from the capital. This week, we'll explore the implications of Afghanistan's fall. We'll hear from people on the ground, from people who've escaped, and from former military leaders. I'm joined too by Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark and Jamie Shea, who spent decades inside NATO. Let me start by getting your reaction, Jamie Shea, to the scenes of the last few days. Harrowing and, and heart-wrenching, uh, of course, to see what's uh, happening. Hopefully, uh, with all of the uh, additional NATO troops being sent to Kabul airport at the moment, NATO collectively can seize control of the situation regarding evacuations. Uh, I'm not sure how long the Taliban are going to leave the window open for these evacuations to take place, uh, but I do hope that at least there'll be a decision at NATO tomorrow to prolong the presence beyond the initial departure date at the end of August, that's already next week, to give time for the evacuations to at least take place in an orderly way. I know it's uh, a little bit like the uh, the salvage of the wreckage, but it's the best that uh, NATO can do under the present circumstances. Professor Michael Clark, your reaction so far? Yes, I mean, just following on Jamie's point, really, that, you know, what, what we were faced with was a, a policy after 2014, which was gradually failing. And that gradual failure was turned into a disaster by President Trump's decision to negotiate the way he did with the Taliban. And then that disaster was turned into a catastrophe for Afghanistan by the way Joe Biden ratified that decision and then is carrying it out. When people say that the last 20 years has all been wasted, I don't agree with that because there's a generation of people now who've grown up in Afghanistan, who are educated and who have expectations, and that will create a different sort of Afghanistan. But there's no question about it that, that politically this chaotic situation at the airport crystallizes the fact that we have telescoped 20 years of political progress back to a situation before the 9-11 attacks. So the situation in Afghanistan politically is objectively worse than before the 9-11 attacks. And we just have to hope that the social progress that NATO and other countries have encouraged in that 20 years will eventually come back through to help guide Afghan society towards the future. Well, as we've seen, the collapse of Afghanistan's government has triggered a desperate scramble to escape with huge numbers of both Afghans and foreign nationals trying to get out. Vice Admiral Saben Key is overseeing Britain's evacuation mission, but he admits those Afghans approved for resettlement first have to find their way to Kabul's airport, which is surrounded by Taliban fighters. It's quite obvious that the Taliban now have the, are, are the prevalent security providers across Afghanistan. That's a fact. And therefore, it's very much up to them. And these individuals, as we call them forward, have to make their own way to the vicinity of the airport. We then bring them in to the airport uh, and pro process them, bring them into the airport uh, and, and bring them back into a place of, um, you know, repatriation. So at a tactical level around the gates, we are having to have a pragmatic engagement with, with the local Taliban commanders. And thus far, they have seen, seemed acquiescent uh, and understanding of what we're trying to achieve. Speaking to LBC's Nick Ferrari earlier this week, the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, admitted there are limits to what they'll be able to achieve. At the very least, our obligation has to be 
as many of these people through the pipeline as possible. But I, I, I think I also said, and it's, and it's a really deep part of regret for me, um, that some people won't get back. Some people won't get back, and um, we will have to uh, do our best in third countries to process those people. Why do you feel it so personally, Mr Wallace? Because <laughs> I'm a soldier. Um, because it's sad, and the West has done what it's done. And we have to do our very best, Nick, to get people out and stand by our obligations. And 20 years of sacrifice um, is what it is. Among those who've been trying to get out is the wife of former Royal Marine Commando, Penn Farthing. He founded an animal shelter in Kabul and is still there. And earlier he told me about the chaos facing those trying to flee. Down at the airport, it is absolutely just a humanitarian disaster that is just getting worse and worse every day. And I'm sick to death now of listening to politicians from both sides of the pond um, say, no, it's fine, we're getting people out. They're getting people out but only the lucky ones who are able to basically crawl their way through the throng of people and actually get themselves inside that airport. 12 people have now been killed trying to get into that airport. This is absolute madness, and both the British and the American governments are responsible. And I do not understand why they are not taking charge of this. The government here in the UK has said the Taliban is cooperating, allowing people to access the airport. Is that what your experience is? The Taliban are allowing people to access the outside of the airport. So that, that's the big difference. Um, what you've got to imagine now, the airport is a fortress. So like um, you arrive at Heathrow and you're coming into the car park. So the Taliban are allowing you into the car park. But then you've got thousands upon thousands of people in that car park trying to get through those one set of glass doors into Terminal 5 of Heathrow Airport. Last night, a UN convoy, the UN convoy with armoured SUV vehicles had to turn round because they could not get into the airport. I'm not going to tolerate hearing another minister on TV saying the system is working because it's not. It never worked in the first place. It's broken and something needs to be done today, otherwise more people will die, and that is squarely on the hands of the British and the American governments. Your wife and a colleague tried, a pregnant colleague tried to get out. What happened to them? They got the call from their relevant uh, embassies. My wife's Norwegian, my country manager is American. They went to the airport. This was a couple of days ago now. It just became absolute carnage, um, and everybody was pressing towards the gate. The gate wasn't being opened to let people through to release that pressure. Um, and instead, the American soldiers on top of the, the actual gate started firing shots in the air, which obviously created an absolute pandemonium and pandemic of people trying to run back the other way. It's not the way you control a system here. They, they need to stop, think, regather and say, right, what do you need to do? And if they need to bring more troops in this country for the withdrawal that they called, then they need to do that and they need to do that now. This is a complete masterclass in how to not do an evacuation from a foreign country. So, so in that light, in what you just described, your, your wife and the colleague, they have not got out. They're back in Kabul, are they? They're still in Kabul. They managed to get back out to a safe house that night and then they got back here uh, late last night. So we regrouped. We actually left very, very early this morning and we managed to get them through before the throng of crowds actually arrived for you know, daylight hours. So we took a bit of a risk going in the dark, but we managed to get them through. So my wife, my country manager and her little boy are most likely out of here now. You served in Afghanistan. How do you feel seeing the country collapse in this way? I am so bitter. 
um, numb, angry, upset, scared. Um, there's so many emotions at the minute. I think when this is all over, um, probably a lot of them will come out. Um, I, I lost two of my young Marines here. You know, thousands of soldiers, you know, were sacrificed here in Afghanistan. And everybody believed, and I truly believed, that we were achieving something, you know, and those sacrifices weren't in vain. We, you know, we had girls going to school. We had uh, people, you know, gaining employment, you know, through education uh, and actually wanting to make this country a better place. And then suddenly, without no thought for the future, everything we've done for the last 20 years is gone. So everything that everybody sacrificed is for nothing, absolutely nothing. And it's, it's heartbreaking. We gave everybody hopes, dreams, future aspirations, and we've just thrown that away. My female staff are terrified, absolutely terrified of what is about to come. I can't even try and comfort them because I, there's no way I can understand what they're you know, potentially about to go through. I've got a British passport. So as long as I can get myself through that crowd at the airport, I'm out of here. But they're not, and it's, it's devastating. Pen Farthing. Well, the journalist Lynn O'Donnell has spent the last three months in the country. She flew out of Kabul on Sunday. When I spoke to her, she told me about her final days in the Afghan capital. We started to get uh, messages and calls from people who worked in the presidential palace with the former president and in the National Security Council saying that people were leaving, uh, clearing out their desks, uh, encouraging all those around them to book air tickets. Ashraf Ghani was due to give a live televised address on Friday the 13th and he cancelled it. Uh, Sunday morning I had a ticket out on an eight o'clock flight. I went to the airport and noticed on the way that all security on the streets and intersections of Kabul had just disappeared. It had melted away. We knew then that, that we were getting out in time. We just didn't know how lucky we would be and as it turned out we were on the last commercial flight to leave Kabul before uh, the Taliban came in and the airport was closed and shots were fired and the mass and hysterical and awful um, evacuation scenes that we've seen since began. Lynn, when we spoke to you last a couple of weeks ago, you were in Herat, the Taliban were advancing and you felt relatively safe at the time. Uh, were you astonished by the quick changing events? I was surprised at the speed with which it all changed. When I went to Herat, my original plan had been to stay 48 hours and then rockets were fired on the airport, the airport was closed. So I didn't get out for um, three days longer than I'd originally planned. I think that those three extra days in Herat were really the wake-up call. The Taliban came in, I could see from the hotel where I was staying, some firefights uh, encroaching into the city. Um, I know a lot of people in Herat and they were telling me how close the Taliban were getting to them and to their relatives. So, yeah, it, it happened fast, but the fall of Herat, the encroachment even before the fall into Herat was very much an alarm bell for us, yeah. And what are your fears for those left behind? Oh, I'm afraid people are going to be killed. Um, this is what the Taliban have been doing, um, rounding people up, uh, looking for their enemies. I've got people who um, their offices have been raided, their homes have been raided, people have been disappeared. Um, this is the reality and it's been happening before our eyes and I've been reporting on it for months um, and I am very, very afraid for uh, my friends who are trapped, literally trapped, 
inside Afghanistan today. And what about yourself, Lynn? Were you in danger at any point? Yes, I think so. Um, I've been told that I was, that I was targeted. I think that I'm very lucky to be out. Um, I will have to think very carefully about going back, um, but I'm not in nearly as much danger. I have passports, I have travel, I'm now in Western Europe. I'm lucky. I have friends who I haven't been able to track down. I have friends who are living in terror, who have visas and passports who can't get to the airport. This is a shameful episode. Let's just hear what the head of the UK Armed Forces, General Snick Carter, said earlier this week. It may be uh, that this Taliban is a different Taliban to the one that people remember from the 1990s. It may well be a Taliban that is more reasonable, it's less repressive, and indeed if you look at the way it is uh, governing Kabul at the moment, there are some indications that it is more reasonable. We've got to be patient. Um, let's see what happens. Um, you know, it may well be that they've learned from the last 20 years in the same way that we have learned from the last 20 years. And it may be that they believe that the civil society that has been created in Afghanistan over the last 20 years um, should be given a chance to carry on, but under their terms. When the head of the UK's military says the Taliban may have changed and we should give them the benefit of the doubt, what's your reaction then? I can only say he hasn't been paying attention. The Taliban are the world's uh, biggest and richest drugs-producing and trafficking cartel. This is what's funding their insurgency, what has funded their victory, and um, General Sinek Carter and many, many others have just been in utter denial. What's happening in Kabul at the moment does not indicate any change in their approach at all. The Taliban are going door to door, they're rounding up people, they're harassing people, uh, they have uh, military checkpoints, military style checkpoints on the airport roads, they're stopping cars, they're searching people, they're seizing passports and burning them. People are living in terror. Now, somebody said to me earlier today, the streets are quiet. Well, of course they're quiet. You don't go out on the streets if you might get shot. They're making women stay at home in places they already control. Uh, girls' schools are being closed. Women are being forced indoors. Names of women and girls are being uh, taken so that um, they can be married off to Taliban fighters. Uh, this isn't fantasy. This isn't reasonable. This isn't changed. This is worse than it was. So Nick Carter, open your eyes and have a look at who it is you now want to do business with. Lynn O'Donnell now safely out of Afghanistan. Well, Professor Michael Clark, do you think Nick Carter genuinely believes the Taliban has changed or, or is he saying what he needs to say to facilitate the evacuation? Yes, I mean, remember that Nick Carter's the head of the armed forces, therefore he's part of Britain's uh, government and its official diplomacy. And a, an official diplomat, whatever he or she may think privately, you have to keep every door open. You have to keep every possibility in play for as long as possible and, you know, what he was saying is what the government has been saying, which is that we hear all these things that uh, Baradour and Mujahid and these various spokespeople for the Taliban are saying. We hear all of that. Well, we'll judge you by your actions. So he's not saying that we, we completely slam the door in their face. If they are different, then prove it to us. That's, that's the subtext of all this. So I don't condemn him for what he said. And I'm, I don't know what he thinks privately, um, but I can guess, which is that he's not going to hold his breath on any of these promises. This 
is Zidrab. Lord Dannett was chief of the general staff in 2006 when British forces faced fierce Taliban resistance in Helmand province. He told our reporter Lisa Hartle how it felt to see Afghanistan fall so quickly. Really tragic, surprising, shocking. Uh, we've all understood that the um, situation has been very tense in Afghanistan for a long time, but it seemed that the small number of international forces, US-led British troops as well, supporting the Afghan National Army, were able to keep the, the Taliban contained, the fighting mostly in the south. But um, it would seem that the decision by President Biden to rather arbitrarily decide to bring all the American troops out by the 20th anniversary of 9-11 has undermined the will of the Afghan army. Uh, we've removed the technical support and the moral support to them. And how did Western countries who've spent 20 years in Afghanistan misread the situation on the ground so badly? Well, I'm not sure that we did misread the situation that badly. I think the, the change factor was the decision by the Americans to leave not on a conditions-based basis, but by the arbitrary date of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And that has taken everybody by surprise. I think actually it's also taken the Taliban by surprise. They're quite surprised at the speed at which they've gone right through the country and got into Kabul. It's taken them several days to work out their, what their policy is and, and what their formal position is. It's not a question of misreading the situation. We've been, dare I say it, undermined by the American decision. Nick Carter says the Taliban may have changed. Is he right? We don't know. We'll have to wait and see whether the Taliban of 2021 are the same as the Taliban of 2001. Uh, it looks to me as if early indications are that they may be somewhat more moderate uh, in their outlook. I think they also have to recognise, if they look around in Kabul, the Kabul of 2021 does not look like the Kabul of 2001. A lot of progress has been made in the last 20 years, and if they want to try and revert back to where Kabul was 20 years ago, I think they'll have a huge task on their hands. And I think the other factor is that they do, over time, want to get recognition from other countries around the world. And if they go back to a really repressive, harsh regime based on a fierce application of Sharia law, I don't think they'll find they've got many friends around the world at all. We've heard veterans of the conflict and relatives of some of those killed question whether there was any points in the sacrifices of the last 20 years. What would you say to them? All our armed forces carried out their duty with utter professionalism, great commitment and real dedication. Of course, it's a tragedy for the family, our families of 457 of our people who lost their lives and a tragedy for many others who have suffered life-changing injuries, whether physical injuries or, or mental injuries. And people quite rightly are wondering, was it worth it? But the traditions and the standards of the British Army were really upheld over that over that 20-year period, and people should be proud of that. And I think the other thing, and it goes back to what I was saying about the Kabul of today is not the Kabul of 20 years ago, over the last 5, 10, 15 years, because of the way we've kept the pressure of the Taliban contained, Afghan civil society, Afghan government, their economy, ha has improved markedly. The position of women has changed, girls can now go to school. All those achievements have been done as a result of our efforts over the last... 5, 10, 15, uh, 20 years. On the one hand, it now looks a tragedy that might be swept away. But let's wait and see what the Taliban of 2021 look like. I'm hopeful that actually the future might not be quite as bad as we fear. Boris Johnson says it simply isn't possible to, to remain in Afghanistan if the US is determined to leave. 
Doesn't that raise questions about the capacity of the British military and our uh, reliance on the US? Well, the integrated review that was published a number of months ago said that most of the major operations that we would be involved in in the future would be on an alliance or coalition basis. And those alliances and coalitions are invariably led by the United States. So I think that makes the point that we would expect the US to take the lead in most of these things. But the UK has significant capabilities across the board, which means that it is possible for us to conduct smaller operations on our own. As far as Afghanistan now is concerned, when we heard that the Americans were going to leave, an effort was made by the Ministry of Defence to see if other European NATO nations would join us in continuing the mission in Afghanistan. But there wasn't much appetite for that, and we felt quite rightly that we couldn't do it on our own. But um, it does call into question the overall size and capability of the British Armed Forces. And, and your question, will we only ever do this with the Americans, is a fair one. And the answer is probably large operations, almost invariably, with the Americans. Lord Dannett speaking to Lisa Hartle. Well, MPs returned to Westminster to have their say on Afghanistan's collapse, among them a number who themselves had served in the country. As Paul Osborne reports, the Prime Minister got a rough ride. The first time since March last year that the Commons chamber had been full, social distancing a thing of the past. The Prime Minister saying our mission in Afghanistan was seared into the national consciousness. But once Joe Biden committed the US to withdrawal, he said... Britain's options were limited. I really think that it is uh, an illusion uh, to believe that there is appetite amongst any of our partners for a continued military uh, presence or, or, the, or for a military solution. And his warning to the Taliban, the world is watching. We will judge this regime based on the choices it makes and by its actions rather than by its words. On its attitude to terrorism to crime and narcotics as well as humanitarian access and the rights of girls to receive an education. For Commons Defence Select Committee Chair Tobias Elwood, still many unanswered questions. You're actually ceding back the country to the very insurgency that we went into defeat in the first place. And the reputation of the West to support democracies across the world has suffered. There are so many lessons to be learned from what happened over the last 20 years. But the Prime Minister again turned down his call for a public inquiry. Boris Johnson's predecessor, meanwhile, had her own questions. Theresa May asking how the international community failed to predict what has happened. Was our intelligence really so poor? Was our understanding of the Afghan government so weak? Was our knowledge of the position on the ground so inadequate? Or did we really believe this? Or did we just feel that we had to follow the United States and hope that on a wing and a prayer, it would be all right on the night? To those who served, she said they could hold their heads high. The politicians sent them there. The politicians decided to withdraw. The politicians must be responsible for the consequences. For Labour leader Sakir Starmer, questions centre on those political failures. Your sacrifice deserves better than this. And so do the Afghan people. Mr Speaker, there's been a major miscalculation of the resilience of the Afghan forces and staggering complacency from our government about the Taliban threat. While Tom Tugendhat, a former army officer who served in Afghanistan, couldn't hide his anger at Joe Biden and his decision to blame the Afghan soldiers who fought alongside Americans. To see their commander-in-chief 
call into question the courage of men I fought with, to claim that they ran. It's shameful. Those who have never fought for the colours they fly should be careful about criticising those who have. Tom Tugendhat ending Paul Osborne's report there. The political arguments around the collapse of Afghanistan will go on for months. But Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy told me that, in the end, responsibility lies with Boris Johnson. Ultimately, the Prime Minister must take responsibility. And what I think yesterday proved, and the experience of the crisis over the last few days, is that uh, the Prime Minister has proven unfit and unprepared to cope and deal with this very grave crisis. It was really unforgivable that we had our integrated review less than six months ago, more than 100 pages, but only two passing references to Afghanistan and no mention of the Taliban or of withdrawal. It's unforgivable that he's only in the last three days since Kabul fell, started calling and speaking to other leaders, including the NATO Secretary General. And, you know, we've been president of the G7 since January, and he's only now calling a meeting in a few days' time at the G7 to build the sort of coalition of support that needs to confront the Taliban, but put in place the arrangements for a safe system of refugee passage, the continuing flow of aid, and the plan to make sure that we can protect ourselves from the terrorist threat in the future. And that's where the culpability must lie. The buck stops with the Prime Minister. It's there at the top. And that was so clear yesterday in the comments. Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy there. While Joe Biden has faced international criticism for his unilateral decision to withdraw, the US president was defiant when he spoke from the White House. How many more generations of America's daughters and sons would you have me send to fight Afghanistan's civil war when Afghan troops will not? How many more lives, American lives, is it worth? How many endless rows of headstones at Arlington National Cemetery? I'm clear on my answer. I will not repeat the mistakes we've made in the past. Well, let's bring back Professor Michael Clark and Jamie Shea and also joining us Karen von Hippel, formerly of the U.S. State Department, now Director General of the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, Karen, Joe Biden said that the buck stops with him before going on to blame Donald Trump for signing the deal and Afghanistan's own forces. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I think he was trying to prove that he was not Donald Trump by accepting the responsibility, because we all remember Trump never took the blame for anything. Um, But then he was also really trying to explain that his hands had been tied. Now, he could, of course, change the agreement that Trump had agreed with with the Taliban. But at that point, they had already let, uh, you know, 5,000 people out of prison. All sorts of changes had already happened. And so in, in, in a sense, it is also true that his hands were tied and it would have been he would have had to escalate significantly, I think, to change the situation on the ground. Jamie Shea, it was presented as a binary choice between withdrawal or return to full-on fighting. But we also know the president was given the third option, that enhanced US force to keep the peace, which he rejected. 
Yes, indeed, it's well known that Joe Biden, uh, since the time when he was vice president in the Obama administration, has never been a fan of the US deployment in Afghanistan. He was against the Obama surge of forces, and he always advocated just a residual presence of US special forces uh, to deal with any sort of resurgence of jihadists in the shape of Al-Qaeda or ISIL. But that said, he did have other options. Uh, for example, he already changed the Trump position uh, by extending the withdrawal of US forces he also, of course, could have delayed the American uh, withdrawal uh, until such time as the Taliban really did show signs of negotiating seriously in, uh, in Doha, because as soon as he announced the complete withdrawal, the Taliban had no incentive to negotiate a power-sharing deal any longer, and he could have thought harder about putting in place a U.S. presence in the region or on carriers, uh, which would uh, be a deterrent to the Taliban uh, should they uh, engage in any kind of mass violence. For example, uh, a declaration that the US would uh, use airstrikes if the Taliban seized major provincial uh, centers. So a little bit more thinking about the aftermath should have been uh, done before the US announced uh, irrevocably that it was pulling out completely. Karen von Hippel, six months ago, Joe Biden was saying America is back, but this felt much more like America first, a speech that could just have easily have been made by Donald Trump. Do you agree with that? I mean, I, I don't actually in this particular case, because I think as Jamie was saying, he, Biden has been telegraphing that he wants out of Afghanistan for a very long time. I think all the way back to 2008, I think, as you mentioned. It shouldn't come as a surprise. And, you know, to be fair, he consulted, his team consulted with the allies. They may have protested and they may have ignored those protests. I don't know enough about the details, but it wasn't similar to Trump in that he didn't he, he didn't even care what allies said. He did they did listen, they did consult, they reached out. Now there obviously I don't know the details of how those conversations went. And that actually will matter more if America just said, well, you know, we don't care what you think, but we're letting you know what we're doing. That's a very different thing than consultation. Professor Michael Clark, if you were sitting in Ukraine or Taiwan, might you be wondering now how willing the US will be to come to your aid? in a crisis in future. Uh, yes, you might. Uh, and the, the, there's no doubt that this, the way this decision has played out is bad for America's general credibility. I mean, Joe Biden said that America is back and it wants to work with its allies, and I'm sure that is true. And I'm not a declinist analyst of America. I don't, I mean, the fact is America is an amazingly important player in any region of the world in which it takes an interest and on any issue in which it takes an interest. But when it comes to marginal cases, and Ukraine may be a more of a marginal case for you, for America than Taiwan, when it comes to marginal cases, Joe Biden has got to, in a sense, increase the credibility of the United States. He's got to get back some of the ground he has lost. So undoubtedly, decision makers in uh, countries in, in, in capitals like Kiev or Taipei will be looking very carefully at how America behaves in the next one or two years as they make their own calculations as to how to play their relations with their big neighbours, in, the, in this case, Russia or China. So I'd, I'd be more worried if I was in Kiev than, than in Taipei, but I'd be a bit more worried in both cases this week than I was three weeks ago. And Jamie, what will America's NATO allies make of all of this? Well, I, I think that there are some lessons. Number one, NATO has 
spoken of in recent years about improving its intelligence. Uh, in a complex world, you need better strategic anticipation. A lot of investments have gone into this. A new division at NATO headquarters has been established. But clearly, uh, this was an intelligence failure. So NATO needs to go back to the drawing board. Secondly, the Biden administration said that it would consult allies on all of the big strategic decisions. You know, NATO would act more as a political alliance. It would think ahead. It would look before it leaps. And uh, yet the US decision to withdraw was a unilateral one, which forced NATO to go along. So NATO needs to look again when it gets to its new strategic concept exercise at what it can do to be a more anticipatory political alliance where people actually think ahead and look at what they're doing uh, before they pull the action lever. Uh, the third thing, it, it, and last thing, is that we've spent uh, over $82 billion uh, training the Afghan National Forces. Uh, they have collapsed. NATO now needs to look urgently at the lessons of what went wrong with its training effort, despite all of the expenditure, all of the equipment, because it's uh, stepping up its presence in Iraq to do exactly the same thing. And the Iraqi army presents many of the same problems, ethnic divisions, lack of leadership, corruption, as the Afghan army. NATO not afford two big training failures in a row. So drawing the lessons of Afghanistan and apply them immediately to Iraq strikes me as the most urgent task on the agenda after NATO has sorted out the immediate evacuation crisis. Well, over the last 20 years, 150,000 British military personnel have served in Afghanistan. Many more have also been to the country, including many reporters here at BFBS. James Hurst spent close to a year in Afghanistan over a number of trips covering the conflict in Helmand province. This is personal. For me, for the 150,000 people who served on Britain's military operations in Afghanistan, for their families, the diplomats, the aid workers, the Afghanistan conflict has touched an entire generation. For some of us, it has defined a significant part of our lives. For others, it has changed lives forever. I spent about 10 months in all in Afghanistan, living and working alongside British forces in the final five years of combat operations. And I witnessed some change for the better in Helmand province. When I first visited for three months in 2010, British forces faced some of their fiercest fighting. The toll of casualties felt relentless. The sight and sound of medical evacuation helicopters bringing back the dead and those just clinging to life into Camp Bastion was all too frequent, sometimes several times a day. When I returned two years later, Helmand's security had increased dramatically. We were able to get out and see the reality far more easily. I remember smiling children running to greet British soldiers on a patrol in Nari Siraj, meeting women who were running their own businesses at a new credit union in Lashkagar, and visiting a school where young boys and girls were taught side by side. In the final years, the focus was training up Afghanistan's own forces and drawing down. Even then, people were asking, was it worth it? On Sunday, as I sat in the English sunshine, reading updates on the Taliban's takeover of Kabul, it felt surreal and heartbreaking. All that sacrifice, 457 British lives lost, thousands of lives changed forever by physical and mental trauma, and of course the tens of thousands of Afghans killed in the fighting. At first, it was hard to think anything except that everything that that sacrifice was for had gone down the drain. I've reflected since, 
Thousands of other people are alive, thanks to the help of Britain and its allies. Maternal and infant mortality in Afghanistan have dropped drastically in that time. The millions of girls who've been through school and university, they cannot have that education taken away from them. And Al-Qaeda is significantly weakened. Even if Islamist terrorists do still have a foothold in Afghanistan, it is much smaller now. The Taliban say they have changed, that women and girls can still go to school and work in modest Islamic dress, that they will not allow terrorists safe space, and that they want a peaceful Islamic emirate. If they hold to their words, some progress might not be rolled back, but of course there are big doubts about their words. So, was it worth it? For me, it is still too early to tell. We still don't know what Afghanistan's future really holds. But then I made no real sacrifice for Afghanistan. The worth of the sacrifice can only be judged by those who made it, willingly or not. James Hurst there. Well, one last question. A year from now, or five years from now, will we be able to say our mission in Afghanistan was worth all that it cost? Karen von Hippel, your thoughts? Yeah, I think we need to demonstrate a bit of humility in what we can achieve in these places. And if we have more realistic expectations and we design these operations in more realistic ways, I think we're more likely to be successful. But as as, uh, your correspondent was saying in this very powerful piece, uh, you know, there are two ways it could go. And the place has fundamentally changed in the last 20 years, and some of those are going to be very hard to roll back. It'll be hard for them to roll that back and still govern uh, in a way that's acceptable. And so really the concern is, will it descend into civil war again? Uh, And that's really what would be the biggest tragedy of all. To you, Professor Michael Clark. Yes, I mean, Afghanistan is one of those cases that, that is full of contradictory emotions and analyses. And, and like James, when when I've been there, um, I was immensely proud and impressed by what I saw British service personnel doing. It's very affecting just to see the commitment and the effect that they had at local level. But even while I was watching that with enormous pride, um, the, I wondered how confused and how ambiguous the whole overall strategy was. You wondered how much it would add up to something. And I think where I come down on this question in a year or five years' time is this may turn out to be a turning point for the Western world, but only if we let it. If we keep this in perspective, this does not have to be a turning point. It is certainly a setback, but it will be a turning point if we allow ourselves to be kowtowed by what went wrong at the strategic level in this operation. We shouldn't do that. And that is it for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark, Jamie Shea, Karen von Hippel and all of my guests. You can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS Sitrep. But for now, thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>